0: This was a good session for me to write. And I I will admit, I am am not an in-times expert. Okay, so I've I've studied it. I've questioned different things throughout my studies. I've wondered about it. So as I was writing this session, it was it was good for me. And what you're gonna, what I'll be just really upfront with you here to start, the questions I'm asking in the notes are the questions I'm asking. So these are the things that I have wrestled over. Um, and so uh, that's what we will wrestle over together. And um, so to that end, let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into this session. So Father, help us. Help us to understand, to know, and to be prepared that we would live life today the way you've called us to live. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. So here's the question that I've wrestled with and continue to wrestle with. Um, it's there at the very top of the page. How do we reconcile passages that teach that, Christ recur, that Christ's return could happen at any moment? The word there is imminency with passages that teach about very specific signs that happen before Christ's return. It's a long question. How do we reconcile the the idea of imminency, which we've talked about kind of in some of the points that I made in our first session, that the return of Christ is at hand. How do we reconcile that with, that Christ could come, how do we reconcile Christ could come back right now This second, or this second, with the idea that there are are signs that must happen before Christ returns. So, uh, if you just kind of make the observation, imminency was not one of my first five points in the first session. Okay? It was not one of my first. At first, when I started writing this, it was on that lust, that was number six. But the more I looked at it, I realized, no, there are some evangelicals that don't hold to imminency, and so I must take it off. So I should probably say, the question should probably, how do we reconcile passages that appear to teach Christ could return at any moment with the sign passages that there are signs before Christ's return? So that's the question. Both cannot be true. Or, or at least at this point, it doesn't appear that both can be true and we've got to parse it out a little bit. But on the surface, the question is, which way are you going to have it? Christ could come at any moment or there are signs that have to happen before Christ's return. And so let me just go back over the passages that people would use in favor of imminency, passages we've already read, James 5, 7 through 9. Now we're ta- Now we're thinking... We're reading these passages thinking of imminency in our minds. It's funny. Different things stand out when we read the passages a second time. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold... The judge is standing at the door. The implication being he's there. He's coming qu- quickly, coming soon. Luke 12, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The, the term be ready is implied in this term, is this idea of imminence. Why would you need to be ready for something that could not feasibly happen? 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 6. Just I'll jump to verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. He comes like a thief in the night. Be ready. It's soon. It could happen not only when you just don't expect it, but it could happen at any moment. And so these are some of the passages that we use in favor of imminency Yet, at the same time, there are also passages that seem to say certain things must happen before Christ come back. And the, the key passage is Matthew 24. We haven't read Matthew 24 today. I don't know that, how we could not, not read this passage on a, on a day talking about the end times, because it is one of the key passages when thinking through how things are going to come to an end. Jesus The Mount of Olives is really, it's a complicated but very key, pivotal passage, and so I'll I'll read it, but you're thinking as I read it that Jesus is giving signs that precede his second coming. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? The when will these things be is specifically the destruction of the temple that Jesus talked about in verse two, they ask a second question, not just when will the temple be destroyed. The second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said, answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath for then there will be a great tribulation such such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, Those days will be cut short. And if if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, and so here, if we were to summarize the signs that Matthew twenty-four and Jesus seems to say must happen before the end will come and Christ will return, are the five that I've listed here in in your booklet. The first one, the preaching of the gospel to the nations um Matthew 24 14 the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as it as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come the end will not come until the gospel is preached proclaimed throughout the whole world that seems to be a definitive sign that must happen before the return of Christ a great tribulation it's Matthew 24 there's also the Parallel passages in Mark 13 that talks about a great tribulation that has not been seen since the beginning of creation. That's verse 9 in chapter 24, verse 19 and 20 of Mark 13. False false prophets working signs and wonders, verses 23 and 24. Look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs, The the fourth one, the sign that seems to precede the coming of Christ, unprecedented natural disaster. The sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens shaken. I mean, we're not exactly sure what that's going to mean and look like, but this is catastrophe. The revealing of the Antichrist, so this isn't explicit here in Matthew 24, the verse 15 talking about the abomination of desolation in the temple. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5 is the passage that seems to, well, not seems, it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. Another Don't believe the Lord the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the sign of destruction. So not any moment. The the man of lawlessness must be revealed first before the end of time, the the second coming of Christ, the end of our days. Now in Matthew 24... The reference to abomination of desolation is probably referring to what in Revelation refers to the image of the Antichrist being set up in the temple. But there is this allusion in Matthew 24 that this great abomination is going to happen um, in the holy place. Is that the fifth one? That is the fifth one. Okay, so, so... which one is it? Are we watching Fox News, waiting to discover that these signs are happening so now all of a sudden we know we are approaching the last times, or is it imminent? How do we reconcile these passages? And if you see your handout... Or the the back of the book, your little chart. This is where we start to see some of the differences in the views on how this is all going to pan out, and a lot of it stems from how you how you answer this question that I've posed to you this morning. And, and so you'll see different views on the timing of the end time events. Okay, and so you'll see six possibilities of the timing of of this event here at the premillennial, and <clears throat> the premillennial side of things. So this is saying Christ returns before the millennium. And so you'll see these six views. The three would be there at the top, the dispensational view, the pre-trib rapture, the mid-trib or the post-trib rapture, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. But then there's also, it's Small on my paper, smaller than yours. It's, there's the classical view, which sees the church going through the tribulation and then Christ returning at the end of the tribulation as well. And so, lots of different views here. So, there's four pre mill views, according to this chart four. Then there's the post mill and the odd mill view. And listen, there's lots of views in between. So, this is not an exhaustive chart. Okay. Four pre mill. Post mill, and I'll explain. I'll explain what some of these charts mean. But if you look at the pre mill view, they would believe that the rapture, which we'll talk about in just a second, happens before the tribulation, where the post trib, the post trib and then also the classical view of the premillennialism believes it happens after the tribulation. But how do we reconcile? Imminency and the signs. Let's go back to this question. How do people with different views answer this question? And the first one to talk about is the historic position of Mount Calvary, of the school that I attended in Dallas. It is the pre-trib, premillennial view, okay? The pre-trib, pre-mill view, which in essence it says, it's the easiest answer to our question. Christ can return at any moment because when he does return it will be for the rapture and then we will have all the signs that are discussed in Matthew 24 that happened during the millennium I'm sorry the tribulation and then the second part of his coming will come publicly at the at the final at the at the end of these signs and so they would say both are can be true christ can come christ will come at a time at any moment that nobody expects for the first phase of the second coming we will go through the the, israel will go through the seven year period prophesied in daniel 9 the tribulation this is revelation 6 matthew 24 the the seal the trumpet the bowl judgments but the church will not be involved because they have been raptured, which keeps in step with this imminency idea in Scripture. And so while I think this view is great in that it does a great job of most simply answering the question that I've posed here, both are true, imminency and yes, there are signs that will definitively all happen in the seven-year tribulation, there is another question that I think we have to ask as we look at this view. And it's the question that I've always asked. So while it answers the question I posed at the beginning really nicely, here's the second question I think we need to ask. Does scripture give clear evidence of a two-phase return of Christ? To me, this is the question when it comes to the rapture view. Does scripture give clear evidence explicit evidence of a two-phase return of Christ. Does scripture clearly distinguish between a secret coming, as what sometimes is called, the secret coming for the rapture, and then the public coming for his second coming? And I'll be honest, this is the question I wrestle with. It answers the question I pose, but then the question is, is the two-phase return clear in scripture? And here's here's how we would argue, yes, that how we would answer yes, and how we would argue for yes according to the scripture to this question that I've asked. First, Revelation three ten, a very famous verse, speaking to the church in Philadelphia. I'll just read the verse because you've kept my word about my about patient about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I mean, at first glance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Pastor Dan had just said Revelation 3 was part of the current events for John as he's writing to these churches. I will keep you from the hour of trial, seems to be suggesting that they will be not there, not present. Another argument in favor of yes to the question of, is it explicit in scripture these two different comings that are part of his second coming? They would say, we would say there are differences in the scriptural descriptions of the first part of the second coming, that's the rapture, and the second part of the second coming, therefore, they must be two separate events. So, what happens is if you study Thessalonians, especially first and second Thessalonians, you see these subtle yet significant differences in the description of what these two comings look like. And so the conclusion is they're two different comings. So the famous one, the most popular one. For the rapture, Christ appears in the air for his church. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We'll we'll read that in a few minutes. Christ doesn't come all the way to the earth. Yet for his second coming, Revelation 19, 14, Christ returns to the earth with his church. So two different things are happening. One, he comes in the clouds, stops in the air. The church comes to him. The resurrection of the church, dead and alive, they return with Jesus. The second coming is altogether different. This time, Jesus is coming with the church, with him, and they come not just into the air, but they come all the way down to the earth. Differences, significant differences. Another one, uh, which I just mentioned, Christ comes to deliver and resurrect the, bo- the body of all believers, dead and alive. That's 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 17 versus the purpose of the second part of the second coming, which is just called the second coming. Christ comes to remove unbelievers on earth as an act of judgment. The rapture is instantaneous and hidden. First Corinthians 15, the second coming will be seen by everyone. And so the point here is, is that this is different. These are significant differences. It can't be instantaneous and hidden yet public at the same time. And so the argument is, these are two different events. Another one, which Pastor Dan, I think, kind of set us up for in the last session, the focal point of the final seven years of Daniel's 70 weeks is not for the church. It's for Israel. This would be the seven-year tribulation. So we're not gonna go through Daniel 9 and the 77s, but Daniel nine twenty-four seems to be suggesting that the tribulation... Is for Israel specifically and not for the church. In fact, the church is never mentioned in the tribulation passages in Revelation. The elect is a common word that's used, Revelation 6 through 19. And so the, de- the deduction is the church isn't there, it's Israel. And then lastly, a point that we've already talked about this morning the rapture could happen at any moment while it's clear, the second coming won't happen until certain events take place. So this is an argument in favor of this two-phase second coming is that it answers that kind of that delicate question of, is it imminent or are there signs? And it says, we our position answers this, this question better than the other views. Now, <clears throat> and that's a very brief argument in favor of this pre mill, pre-trib, rapture view. It's not the only, it is not the only view that holds to that answers the question. So the Amil view would answer the question, I would say pretty well by saying, yes, the return of Christ is imminent. There's no millennium. What well, would not that they wouldn't say there is no millennium. We are currently in the millennium. The signs of the tribulation are already happening. They've happened. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 is a, is a very famous event that they would say is accomplished in Matthew 24. And so they would answer the question. The odd would say, yeah, Christ's return is imminent the signs have actually already happened. And so we would say both of those are true as well. The problem that I have with that view is it just, it doesn't seem, Matthew 24 doesn't seem to be showing, it seems to be showing that there are events in the future that have not yet happened. It's a hard argument, in my opinion, to make that Matthew 24 has already happened. When you look at the level of detail that's described in Matthew 24. And then you go to the the description of the tribulation in Revelation 6. It's the same case. How you've got to convince me that these events have already happened because to me it's unconvincing unconvincing based on the level of detail, the depth of what's happening in the tribulation. But we're just scratching the surface here. so I'm not even really hardly talking much about Ab mill I'm saying the pre-trib, pre-mill argument says, this is how we solve the issue. But there's another large group of Christians that would say, would answer these questions in a different way. This would be the post-trib, if you're following me here, lots of words, and I'm talking fast. Post-trib, pre-mill. You following me? So the post-trib would say, which is also, it's also very similar to the classical view or the historical view. If you go back to your chart, where'd my chart go? Well, where did my chart go? Here it is. I got it. Thank you. So if you look at your chart, here's so the difference between a post-trib, you see the post-trib? It's a dispensational, the church goes through the tribulation, the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, and the difference between that and the classical view, or it's also called the historical view, it's Christ returns there at the end, you see those two? The difference between those, so John Piper, who we talked about in the last session, the covenant theologian, who I love and respect and read everything he has, he would be that bottom view, the classical view, which is basically the view for those who hold to, repl- not everyone, but who basically says the millennium is not for Israel. And so we'll talk more about the millennium, but they're saying, the millennium is not for Israel, it's the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. Now, the post-trib dispensational view says, well, the tribulation or the rapture does happen. It just doesn't happen until after the tribulation, but the millennium is for Israel. And so let's make the argument for post-trib pre-mill. Okay, so what they would say there is not evidence for a two-phase return of Christ. The rapture and the second coming happen at the same time, so they don't reject the rapture. The post-trib says the rapture happens, it's scriptural, but it doesn't happen until after the tribulation. And so here's how their argument would go. Which by the way, this is John Piper's argument, even though his understanding of the millennium is different, his belief is the rapture happens, it just doesn't happen until after the tribulation. I'm talking a lot, I hope you're following. What would they say? How do you make that argument? Well, they would argue that Paul argues for one future appearing of Christ, not two phases separated by seven years. So second, here's the argument, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment judgment of God, that you may also be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, so what the argument here is Paul is expecting two things to happen when Christ is revealed. Verse 6, connected by the word and. Those who have caused affliction will be repaid and relief will be granted to those who are afflicted. So what they're saying is, is this is referring to both the rapture the relief for those who have been afflicted, and also the judgment that we often associate with the second phase of the second coming. What they argue is that this is saying both are happening. Both are happening. Affliction is being repaid. Relief is being granted. And it is all happening when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This isn't talking about to a period that is broken up between two, seven, between 7 years but it's happening at the same time. The other argument that they make in Paul with the, in Thessalonians the the most famous the famous rapture passage 17 and 18 of chapter 4 I think it's in your is it in your book? Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the rapture, the the calling up, the catching up together with him in the clouds, meeting him in the air. That's the rapture we're talking about. Encourage one another with these words. Then you go to 2 Thessalonians, a passage we've already read. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and and our being gathered together to him. So when I have underlined the phrase in 1st Thessalonians 4 will be caught up together with them then i also have underlined are being gathered together to him okay you see those two phrases they're the same thing they're talking about and maybe maybe the maybe there's disagreement to this but they're referring to the same thing. Being caught up together with them are being gathered together to him at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Both are describing the rapture, okay? Verse two continues of chapter two, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so the argument is being caught up to him for 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 are being gathered together to him, the rapture. But this is the the key to the argument is that 1 Thessalonians 2 is not done describing what's happening. Let's see, where am I? Okay, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, that day, so I have just so that you follow, that day that we are being gathered together to him, verse 2. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of of destruction. So what the argument that's made here is, it's the same day. The same day that the lawless one is revealed is the same day that we're gathered together to him, which is the same day as us being caught up together with him. The argument is... There's not two two phases or stages of the second coming, but Paul has in mind one event with multiple things happening at one time. So that's the argument, whether you're there or not. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That doesn't answer all the questions, does it? That might answer some of the questions. Well, let me back up. So the post-trib holds to the rapture. It's just a matter of the timing of the rapture. The post-trib would say the rapture happens. This is what's 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. It just happens concurrently with the return of Christ. And so the two things can happen together. Christ in the air, calls up the believing dead and alive. Then they return all the way to the earth to bring the judgment that we've talked about, okay? And so the second point, that was the first argument for they would make for a post-trib view. The second view is it's not contrary to God's ways for Christians to go through the tribulation. That was an argument of the first view. Believers are not exempt from tribulation, not even the worst kind. Some of the verses Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 17, for it's the time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will we become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lastly, 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 3.10, I'll quote John Piper, because you have to answer these questions. If you're going to hold, if you're going to hold to a rapture view that happens after the tribulation, you've got to account for a passage like Revelation 3.10. And so here's how he argues, I think the quote's in your book. There is another natural interpretation. To be kept from the hour of trial is not necessarily to be taken out of the world during this hour and thus spared suffering, but to, pre- but to be preserved as faithful through it. Compare Galatians 1, three through five. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, and to Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Deliverance from the evil age does not mean we're taken out of it, but that our faith is preserved through it. Similarly, Jesus prays in John 17:15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. To keep us from the evil one does not mean we go out of the world or out of his range. It means we are protected from his destructive power while we are in the world. So, so that's the two arguments. But with the post-trib view, there is another question that you have to ask if you hold that view, okay? So here's that question. I think it's in your book. Yes, it is. The key question, does the future fulfillment of the sign, so meaning if you don't hold to a pre-trib rapture, Does this future fulfillment of the signs of the tribulation make the second coming a predictable event? Now, all of a sudden, we are going up against one of those first five points from our first session. If we're going to have all these signs, all of a sudden now... The the second coming is not unexpected, like so much of Scripture says. Now we we are going to reasonably have a good idea of when it's coming. How can you hold to the, the second coming will be unexpected and unknown and at hand, happening at what seems like any moment, if you hold that these signs must be accomplished before he returns. So John Piper is actually coming out like this next couple of weeks with a book, 300-page little book that he wrote uh, on the end times. And, and I think it's a good one to read as you think through some of these different views. And, and it's called Come, Lord Jesus. It's not out quite yet, but he answers, tries to answer some of these questions because he recognizes his view of eschatology has questions that come with it. And so He has a chapter on eminency. He has a chapter on the signs of Matthew 24, and I think it's a good one to read as you're considering how to understand some of these different ideas. But here's um, what he would say. Uh, He would say, and the view would have to say, not just John Piper, the view has to say, Christ could not come back at any moment. Christ could not come back at any moment. So you then have to go back to all the the end is near, the judge stands at the door, the the end times are at hand. you got to make you have to make sense of some of those passages. but what he would say is, there are some events in the tribulation that haven't happened that have to happen first before Christ' comes back. So he then goes to matthew twenty four and he says, these have this has to happen now. Piper and others. Now it gets muddy here because different post trib post trib rapture views have different ideas what part of the tribulation has been has been historically fulfilled and which ones have not. Piper though would say and others would say that there are things that haven't happened yet. The quote here there's no calculating how many earthquakes, how many famines, how many wars, how many false Christs, false prophets, or how much lawlessness or coldness of love or what intensity of tribulation will signal signal with certainty how near the second coming is. So he's saying, it's still, you're still not gonna know earthquakes and apostasy and false prophets, that's gonna happen even as it ramps up. We're not, even though we see it, we're still not gonna know exactly when Christ is gonna return. Let me say that again, most of the signs of the end that Jesus gives us are kinds of events that do not lend themselves to date setting. Quantities and intensities and frequencies of such events are not precise indicators of how close the coming of the Lord is. So what you have to do if you hold this view is you're trying to maintain this idea that though the signs have to happen, we're still not gonna be able to know exactly when Christ is coming, which is I think a little little tricky to be able to do that, because what's the purpose of a sign? The purpose of the sign is to tell you that something's about to happen, but he's saying, we're still not going to actually know, and then, so he would say, but there are two events, or three events, really, that have to happen before Christ can come back, okay? The first one, the the revealing of the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The man of lawlessness, the rebellion, the false prophet, all talked about in Matthew 24. This hasn't happened yet, and it has to happen before Christ returns. Then he would also say, the the view would also say, that the cosmic events of Matthew 24, the the events that are described, the cosmological events with the sun, moon, and stars, this hasn't happened either. One more quote from Piper. I understand these cosmic events as real cosmological events, just as the coming of Christ is real bodily, spatial, visible, audible event. With the incarnation of Jesus in literal flesh and blood and with the resurrection in a body that ate fish and showed wounds, with the ascension of that body on literal clouds and with the promise of the coming of that glorious body to a literal earth, we should be slow to treat the signs accompanying the second coming as metaphorical. Jesus and the apostles give no hint that they are not describing cosmological reality. From the way Jesus describes the events of Matthew 24, 29 through 30, it seems that they happen, listen to this, it seems that they happen in immediate conjunction with the appearing of Christ. These signs do not appear to happen far enough in advance of his coming that they ki- that they could be used to calculate his near arrival. They happen at his coming. And so what he's saying is the revealing of the Antichrist, of the rebellion, of the cosmic events that, are disc- that happen in Matthew 24, they happen concurrently with the second coming and therefore they can't be used they can't be used to calculate when the day of the Lord is because they happen on the day of the Lord. They're happening around the same time that Jesus is coming back. So lots of information here. Let me put it in summary. Uh, Post-trib rapture, one second coming. I don't know if it's in your book or not. Rejects imminency. It's near, but it's not right now. Uh, there, we're probably at. We probably can't be any more than five to seven years away. He would say, at the earliest. That, but the argument is there's one second coming. That's the heart of this of this argument. One second coming, and and maintains my point from the first session that this coming is unexpected because the signs don't have to because the signs that do have to happen happen simultaneously with his coming. So listen, there's questions. There's lots of questions there. You're writing them on your paper. I mean, it is not a view without major questions of how you reconcile it. And then you have the pre-trib rapture view, the classical view of this church. Embraces imminency. Christ could come back at any time. Argues for a two-part second coming, which I've already alluded to. That, to me, is the Question. Do you feel comfortable? Can you you be convincing that the two parts in Thessalonians are not the same event and are two events? Like is that the clearest, easiest understanding of the description of the the second coming in Thessalonians? But that's the question. And then also the pre-trib, pre-meal rapture maintains the first coming is unexpected But the second is not because they're signs. And so it's not supposed to be unexpected. That's why we have signs to show those that are on earth that the final phase of the second coming is coming. Whew, that's a lot of information. Oh boy, glazed over. I wrestle with this. And you probably can tell as I'm teaching this. I hold to the rapture. I'll leave it at that. this is something to wrestle with i listen i want scripture to to guide me here i don't want the historic doctrine of my seminary of this church to guide me i want to be convinced by god's word and and so this isn't evolving that this isn't i'm not settled like i said i'm learning as i'm writing these lessons i'm being challenged as i write these lessons and so it, is, it has been good for me. I think it's good to wrestle over. But again, the, the point is, Christ is coming. And he's coming to get us and to save us and to redeem us and win some of these events and some of these questions. I don't have answers. I don't have the great answers that make me feel super confident about some of these views. I mean, I was taught the pre-trib, pre-mill, and that's where I lean still today. But I still question Thessalonians in the two phases of his return and whether or not that's clear enough to have such a defined and important doctrine formed over. I just I struggle with seeing that, but that doesn't answer all the questions. To not embrace the two phase coming, there's other questions that I don't feel great about answering either. Um, So that's kind of where we are. Let's pray because that's what all we can do now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, and we're thankful for your scripture, and there are questions and it is mysterious, and we want to know what's going to happen in the future and how it's going to happen, but it's not clear all the time. It's not clear, and I think we can all be humbled to say that. It's not clear. Every detail of how this is going to work in the future is not clear but it is encouraging and it is fun and I think it is worthwhile to consider your scripture and to see where you've led us and what you're directing us to. So God, I pray that you help us as we continue to think and to process and to ask questions that that we would continue to learn. Even me, Father, continue to teach me because we wanna know you, we wanna understand your word and we wanna live faithfully for where you have us today. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.